Resiliency Within, with host Elaine Miller-Karras, is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine Miller-Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine Miller-Karras. Welcome to Resiliency Within. So very happy to have Clarence Nero with me today, and I welcome Clarence. I'm going to tell you a little bit about him, but before I do that, I want to let you know that we're live streaming on Facebook Live and on the Resiliency Within Facebook page. He's having a little bit of trouble with his camera today, so you're going to see me, but I think the most important thing is that you're going to hear his voice, not only on Voice America, but also on our Facebook Live live streaming. So Clarence will share today his wisdom from his lived experience and his contributions to youth with innovative writing projects. You know, when I was um, when I first met Clarence, he I met him during the pandemic, and we had some lovely conversations. And I know all the wonderful things he's done, and I thought, oh my gosh, I have to have him on the show. But let me just tell you that he's an associate professor at Baton Rouge Community College. He's an author, a screenwriter, whose accomplishments include his critically acclaimed novel *Cheeky*, *A Child Out of Desire*, nominated for the best books for young adults by the American Library Association and selected as one of the best first novels by Library Journal, which he adapted into a screenplay and is currently in pre-production. He served as literary consultant to help his students publish a book called Voices from the Bayou that he adapted to the stage with the LSU Theater Department. And he then wrote the screenplay that led to the making of the short film Voices. He is the writer, producer, and director of the stage play Trauma on This Land, in 2011, after his brother, I'm so sorry about this too, by the way, Clarence, we haven't had a chance to talk about it, but your brother was murdered in New Orleans and he launched the Bayou Soul Youth Literacy Conference to empower and inspire Louisiana high school students. But Clarence also graduated from Howard University with a BS in chemistry. And he's going to share with us a little bit how he made the transition <laughs> from chemistry. He later earned an MFA in a creative writing for Louisiana State University. He's written several novels. He's going to tell us a little bit about these today and also about the semi-autobiographical Cheeky, A Child Out of Desire that was endorsed. And he'll tell us a little bit about this by the late Dr. Maya Angelou. So welcome, 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 Clarence. And as we get started today, is there anything on your mind before we kind of start with some formal questions that we prepare? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on your show and for that wonderful introduction. As you were reading all of that, I was like, you know, you look back and you're like, when somebody else is reading, you're like, wow, I did all of that. You know what I mean? I've accomplished all of that. You know, you know, sometimes you're in the work and you're just doing the work and you don't really realize it. You look up and you're 50 something years old and you've done all of that. And, you know, so I, um, you know, it's an honor. First of all, I know the work that you do. I sought you out. So um, I know the great things you're doing and it's an honor to be on the show. So that's what I wanted to start off by saying first that I'm well, honored. Thank you, Clarence. I know during the pandemic and you wanted to do a, um, a little workshop on trauma and you sought me out and that's how we first met. And then we've spoken over the years together. And I'm mm. so really honored to have you on the show. So I, I want to start out by asking you 
you started out as a chemist. How did yeah. you become a writer and then a published <laughs> author after starting out? <laughs> How do I go from chemistry? Yes. So yeah. I was, I had no, first of all, I had no prior interest in writing um, in my mind. I was a chemist. I was going to go to medical school. So I was working for the D.C. government in forensic science. I was testing labs and working in the lab. And I was really just, um, at this time in my life, I was feeling like I needed something. Something was missing. Um, I've had, I had some tragedies. I had lost a brother. Um, so that was, so what you talked about, the brother you were talking about that inspired me to start the conference was not my first brother murdered. I've had several brothers murdered. In New oh my goodness! I'm so sorry. So in 1995, I had a brother murdered, and at and I was struggling with that, and, and it, it was bringing up all of these issues from my childhood. It it, it kind of brought me back to growing up in the projects of New Orleans, and it had me thinking about my childhood and what we had to overcome, what he had to overcome, what he succumbed to, what I overcame, and something at this time there was an explosion of black literature happening with Terry McMillan and Waiting to Exhale and Elon Harris, um, Invisible Life. All of this was happening and I was reading about it and I was fascinated by it. And I was like, well, I have a story that I want to tell. And um, I decided to start writing. One day I got home and I pulled out a pen and a paper and I'll say, I have a story, you know, and I want to tell it. Um, my brother was murdered. I'm going to dedicate the book to him. And that's how I saw it. And when I put that pen to paper, something happened. Hmm. I was writing a book. And I was like, what am I, where is this coming from? It was so, like, it was waiting for me. Well, it almost sounds like it was coming from your deep heart. Yeah. And, and your love for your brother. Can can you share his name with the audience so that we can refer to him by name? De Niro. His name was De Niro. De Niro. De Niro. Okay. So De Niro. And, yeah. And he... Um, was, you know, he was always um, fascinated by the fact that I had grown up with him in the projects, but I had gone on to college. And he was all like, the last time I saw him, he was like, I heard, that, you know, you're in college and you're a chemist. He just thought that was so amazing. He was very proud of me, yeah. I could tell. And I was his big brother who had gone on to accomplish these things. So uh, that's how the writing started for me. It started out of a tragedy and out of my pain. And it was very healing to come home every night. And, and, and I couldn't wait to get home. And I also found myself, I used to work the night shift in the lab. And sometime in between my testing, I was writing. And I was always writing from that point on. Um, and so let me ask you a little bit, um, a little about the backstory. So you grew up in... In what you describe as notorious desire project in New Orleans on Ninth yeah. Ward, and so it was riddled with violence, crime, and drugs. Can you say a little bit about what that was like for you? Yeah, I mean, it was it was riddled with those things, but um, and, and it and it and it had um, this sort of tragedies. But for me, it was also a sense of community. It was where I grew up, and it's all that I knew. And and you know, and we had family, and we had. All my family was there, as I, for the most part, on my mom's side, all of my cousins, and we would have Christmas and birthday celebrations and parties and big courtyard festivals and mm. where the DJ would play the music and everybody would be out dancing. This was in the 70s. Um, so there were good times. There were, you know, we, it was not all bad. 
Um, but it as the years went on and we went into the 80s, it started getting worse. I, you know, the, the I think the crack epidemic, the um, drugs, um, people, you know, were almost like losing their mind. And it was a lot. And, and you, you hear about the murders and you would hear the gunshots and you knew it was always there in the possibility. Um, but you would, that's all you know. That's where you live at. Well, I think it's important, like what you talked about, to underscore the strengths that were in your community. Because oftentimes when there's so much tragedy, people focus on. Yeah. So when you describe the, you know, just the love, uh, yes. the gathering of your family, the dancing, the music. I mean, and certainly New Orleans is such a place for music, if anybody right. heard this, right? That there was, right. So, there was so much richness in your growing up as well. But as you talk about how things change from the 70s to 80s and you know, losing um, De Niro. So why was it important for you to share the story to the world? I mean, you, you talk about that being a catalyst, but you know, there's a there's catalysts that happen all the time, but people don't decide to, I got to write about it. What was it about you that inspired this um, writing? I think that I, like I said, I, I knew that I had a story to tell and I wanted to tell it. Um, at the time, it was healing to write the book. I will say that it was healing. It was healing some deep parts inside of me. Um, I didn't, I, you know, my I was in my twenties. I can't say that when I was right when I wrote the book and I decided to publish it, that I had this mind that I was going to change the world. I I'll be lying in my twenties. What I thought in my mind was that I'm gonna write this book, I'm gonna tell this story um, about what me and my family went through, I'm gonna make a lot of money and I'm gonna be a big time writer. And I was flying high on that idea. I met Maya Angelou and, um, and she told me in our first meeting that it was not about you, it's bigger than you, this story that you've written. And I was sitting there thinking, what is she talking about? It's not about me. I wrote it as in my life, but I didn't know it my 20-year-old self all of that what that meant. Until she saw the broader theme that she said this is really important. Yes. Important that it's greater than yourself and your family. It's about, I don't know, humanity. Yeah, it's about what she saw as the stories as a chance to for somebody to see themselves in you your story and find hope and resiliency through the telling of your story, find something to cling to, to see themselves. And that's what sharing a story can do. Now, she not only did that, but she set me up to speak at a school. And I remember that first school and I was so nervous because I was like, what am I going to say to them? You know what I mean? I didn't imagine this part of it. I was writing a book. I didn't imagine going talking about the book now and trying to inspire someone. It, but I, I imagine that if Maya Angelou set something up for you, you were going to go. I it. did. And I did go. But I was nervous, obviously, because this was my first speaking gig at a school. And, it, it, and, and I was during this time, I did see how the kids were impacted. They told me, you know, some of them came up to gave me a hug. And I would begin it. That was the beginning of me understanding how my story would impact others. I really did not see it that way as I was writing it. I mean, I thought that I'll just write a book and it was healing. I'll tell our story, but I didn't think that a woman who was a, my mother was abused in a domestic violence situation would find, you know, women telling me that 
having that story told from a child perspective and a child seeing his mother being abused like that, it gave me hope to break free from an abuser. Or, you know, I didn't, I didn't know that that would happen. I didn't know it would be that deep, honestly. But well, it did that's, become and that's that what, deep. And that's what Maya Angelou saw. She saw that you yes. were speaking a story that was a story for many of us around the world. Yeah. And that, that hope could be conveyed to others. So was that the only time you met her or did you know her? No. After that, I would meet. There were times we would come. You know, I had an aunt. It was a distant aunt on my daddy's side of the family who was close friends with her. And that's how I came into the circle of meeting her. And that wasn't the first time, but there were, over the years, there would be more encounters. And then and then it got to a point where I was able to call her. It was gradual though, it wasn't instant. It was like, it may be years in between and then we would meet up again and then she would get to know me more and I would be able to call her. And then I, before she died, I was actually, invited to family gatherings and Thanksgiving celebrations. And I had a relationship at that point, but it was gradual. Yeah. So, I mean, well, what, a, what an amazing honor. And then also says something about you and what she saw in you. And I, you know, I have to say that I think I've seen it too. And when I, when you first contacted me and your commitment to the youth of Baton Rouge and wanting to provide something that was healing for them. So I know that you started then, really teaching. And so yeah. you went from this idea of this 20-year-old that I'm going to make lots of money and become famous. <laughs> <laughs> right. you know, sometimes our plans change. That happens to all of us, right? Yeah. <laughs> so tell us about how you got there. So how did you get from here I'm writing, you know, Maya Angelou's recognized me. Right. Um, they published my book. Um, so how did it happen that you started um, teaching English and creative writing at Baton Rouge Community College? Well, I wasn't there yet. I was. I became. I decided. Okay, I was speaking at these schools, and I was like, these kids seem to be inspired by my story, and I do like inspiring them. And I was like, what, but what am I going to do now? I didn't. Be, my my book did well, but I'm not making all this money. Um, so I need a job because I had left chemistry. Once my book was published, I went on a book tour, and I, it was the best year of my life. I mean, I didn't have a lot of money, but it certainly felt good to be in a comp, you know, to say I have this book. And, and then also were, that you must have become a better and better speaker. Yeah, I was getting, yeah, yes. I was getting better at it. I wasn't as, I was always nervous because I don't like to speak in front of people, but I was getting better at it. But that led me to saying, what's next for me is maybe I'll be a teacher. And, th and there was a school in inner city school in fifth grade. Uh, it's an inner city school and they hired me as a fifth grade teacher. And, and was I, this in New Orleans? Was this in New Orleans? This was in Washington, D.C. In Washington, D.C., okay. I, I graduated from Howard. I stayed yeah. in D.C. Yeah. So I taught, I became a teacher um, in a charter school. They trained me and they and they brought me in and I didn't know what I was doing. At, and, and once again, and I, but I walked into the classroom and I instantly knew and understood the, 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 the school was in front of a project similar to one I had grown up in. And some of the issues that the kids were displaying in the classroom and dealing with in their households were things that I understood very well. And I and I instantly knew what they were going through. And I used that platform of this where the writing came in. I but I I started it was hard to get them at a place where they trust me and they but I started journaling in the morning and I and I would I would play gospel music. 
as they would journal. And it, it created a calmness and a peace in the classroom. Now, it got me in trouble. I can't play gossip music. I didn't know that um, in school. But that part was like, you can't play the gossip music. But the gossip music was healing. And the, and the trauma they were writing about, I would let them express it in the journal. And then they would talk about it. That's how we would start the mornings. And I started to realize it's, it planted something in me from, from then that how writing could help people. It helped me. I, I was just a kid. I was just somebody who never planned to be a writer. And I knew that it was something about writing helped me. That was healing. Yeah. Classroom. Yeah. And I wanted to bring it to the students to, so they could see their pain, so they could see their story and they could see that they, every day that they come to school and they sit in this chair to get an education that look what you went through, look what you've gone through and you're here. You are here and you're resilient and you are capable and you could be anything you want to be, no matter what you have on that paper and what you've gone through. And Clarence, there was so much wisdom, you know, for a young man and those fifth graders. Now, you did share with me before we are on the air that you hear from these fifth graders now. Can you say a little about the about the relationship and how you still hear from them all these years later? Yeah. Godfrey, (laughs) who's I'm very proud of him. He went on to college and he served in the military. And I remember him specifically because I had them, they were writing their journals and stuff. And I was going around the class, but I didn't call on him immediately. And he and he raised his hand and said, am I invisible to you? And I and it stuck, struck me. And I was like, why would you think that? He was like, because you didn't call on me yet. But anyway, he and I talked about that. How he was not going to be invisible. He meant he was going to be seen. And he wanted to read a poem and he did. And he contacts me from time to time. He's a student that stood out. He, they say he was my teacher's pet. <laughs> but they all were, but he, you know, they all were special to me. And Andre and his brother, I, I had a relationship with it, with him and his brother, you know, and unfortunately Andre lost his brother to violence in that community like I did. So he and I connect on that level of losing brother to violence. And he had a grandmother who, was, who reminded me of my grandmother who really looked out for them because they didn't have their parents around. And I would go and visit the grandmother and them after school and walk to the project with them. And they, he keeps in touch. And, you know, and they, yeah, and they all tell me when they keep in touch how it's inspirational to them and how much they love me as a teacher. That does feel good. I didn't realize the impact that I was having an impact on them at the time. Or how, and I know I was having some impact, but I didn't realize years later how much it would mean to them for them to contact me. Well, you know, it's so interesting that you bring that up. And I just want to kind of underscore something. You know, there's a researcher that I often mentioned on my show called Dr. Christina Bethel. She also grew up in in, in a very difficult part of Los Angeles. And she's now a researcher at um, uh, John Hopkins. But she's written about positive childhood experiences, that they have a way of, of mitigating, of reducing the impact of adverse childhood experiences. Mm-hmm. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about. They talk about a non-related, about a non-related person um, in that child's life who really cared about them mm-hmm. and how that can change and mitigate the impacts of adversity. So yes. um, thank you for sharing a lived experience of that. Because that was possible for every child. You have to care. If you're not gonna get that classroom under control, if they find that you're not real and that you care. I mean, you have to be genuine. So that you started then teaching the fifth grade. Now, there this process of, I know you started a a literary conference for youth. 
Did that happen before teaching at Baton Rouge Community College? So can tell us a yes. little bit about that. So that journey, when I, you know, I decided I was going to move back home after 9-11, um, when I was in D.C., I said, I'm going home. I said, because this, you know, I feel like if something happened in the world, I'm going to be away from my family. And it's time for me to go home and reconnect with them and my grandmother, who's getting old. So I left. And I said, well, what I, I want to teach, you know, I want to get an MFA. I decided I'm going to go back and get an MFA in writing, and I'm going to be a professor. Because they said, you can't be a professor if you don't have a master's or something. So I said, I want to be a professor now. And then I went home and I was studying at LSU and I, yeah. And then during this time, um, I had not started the conference yet. I went on to write other books um, and was published through Random House, Three Sides to Every Story, and then a spinoff, Too Much of a Good Thing Ain't Bad. And those stories were set in present day um, New Orleans instead of 1970 when I wrote the first book and they were fiction. Um, and they dealt with all kinds of issues that were going on with, um, homophobia in the black church, AIDS in the community, drugs, uh, relationships, and and the down low and bisexuality it was dealing with a lot of issues that I covered in those books, right? And so I was writing and I was studying at LSU and I was preparing to be a teacher one day at, on the college level. And then I, you know, somewhere I, you know, I, I was employed at BRCC in 2008 after I graduated from LSU and shortly, year, my brother was murdered during this time. And then I so started. So the second brother was murdered. And what was his yes. name? His name was Sean. Sean. And, he, and he and I were even closer, were getting closer. Um, once I had come back to Louisiana, he and I had gotten really closer. And, you know, and I had started the idea of starting this youth conference um, before he was murdered. And he was like, that's a great idea. You should do that. You know what I mean? And I had even had some cars that promoted to the youth in, in Louisiana to come to my first conference. And he was like, he'll promote it for me. He was, like I said, he and I were developing a bond. Um, and I came and I drove in, ironically, I was with my cousin and we were coming from Maya Angelo house in North Carolina. We were driving back from that and we were talking about the experience. For her, it was her first time. She was like, thank you for inviting me to this. And we were talking and the, I received a call that your brother is murdered. He'd been murdered. And, oh my. Um, and I was like one exit away from his home. And I got off the exit. Me and my cousin went there. His body was on the ground. He was in fetal position. He was on the ground. They had the yellow tape around. And it, you could imagine it was a very hard night. I, I'm, um, I can't imagine. It was, it was one of the worst right. nights of my life. And I couldn't believe because I had just texted him earlier that morning. And, we, and, and, I was here, like, and here he was so supportive of your work and what you were yeah. doing. And then there this, this horrible, horrible, hor horrific thing happened. Yeah, and I was, it was hard. You know what I mean? Can I, was I ask you, um, Clarence, what helped you get through that? You, you know, this is your second brother and you were even closer. You say to Sean and there you were seeing that. What helped you at that moment get through or throughout your life, what helps you when you think back to that time? I think it's a combination of um, obviously family and us wrapping up support around each other, um, faith, um, knowing, you know, I did a lot of praying and I asked God for some understanding and, you know, and I feel like I got some of that. I mean, I had an encounter in a moment with Sean, you know, I don't talk about that often because people are like, oh, you had, what kind of encounter you had? You know what I mean? But I had a real encounter and I asked God for it and I know that he's fine and I know that it's not the end. And I and my grandmother had it was alive during this time. My grandmother Melda, and she had a lot of faith. 
and she would talk about going on to something better. And I learned about that faith early on in my life. And I think the the, the, the singing and the church and the, the community and the love and the support, that got me through it. And, um, you know, it, it definitely was... talked about in the beginning, the strengths of your community, which yeah. I have to say, the gospel music too, which I think is so sad that they didn't want you to play gospel music. <laughs> the fifth graders, when it's such a, you know, it can be such a healing thing. There can be different kinds of music you play too. Right. A representative of music in America, right, is gospel. Yeah, but those kids recognized when I put that gospel music on, they knew, so maybe from the from around their grandmothers or their family, they knew that that music was something that was meant to help them understand their faith and and connect with it. And they, on some level, they understood that. I mean, I, I don't, it came from somewhere that, you know, we all have that knowing. I yeah. think at any we know that there's something greater than ourselves. And whether you're a child or, or we know on some level, no matter what we go through or no matter what we deal with or know how, how low we go in life with some of the things we do, we know at the core that there's something greater than us. And I think when that gospel music was playing, those kids felt that. Well, and I'm also struck by the fact that Maya Angelou knew that when you were in your 20s, that she said, this is something greater than yourself. And then that's what you're saying right now. <laughs> it and is, <laughs> right, look, full circle moment, right? Because I tell you, at 20, yeah. I didn't know what she was talking about all the way. I didn't know what she was talking about. But she's like, I'm not going to talk about it too much with you. I'm going to show you tomorrow when you speak. At the, I set you up to speak. That's what she meant. She didn't tell me what she meant, but she showed me the next day when I went to those kids and spoke at that school. And it was all coming together. You know what I mean? It was all coming together. And I eventually, like I say, ended up at the community college. And I thought I'll be there for a short while. And I will go on to something more. I don't and how you know. Long have you, and how long have you been at the community college? Fifteen yet? years. How many? Fifteen years. Fifteen, <laughs> 15 years that's later. Not a short while, Clarence. It's not a short while. It's not a short while. You know, um, and you know, my books did go on to make me money and was successful on some levels. And like I said, and I'm very happy and proud of the success that I've had. The pro the problem is some of we don't celebrate the successes that we have because we're looking for something more. And I've learned to celebrate the successes that I have and be comfortable in the life that I have. And always, you know, if God has more for me, it'll happen. I, I, in my 20s, I used to worry about it too much instead of appreciating and enjoying it. And, and now I could appreciate and enjoy and be helpful to others. And that's been a greatest reward. I mean, helping my students at Baptist Community College by starting to create a writing club and working with them with their writing and seeing them get published and then helping them get a book published, Voices from the Bayou, all of that happened. And, 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 and it's been a great reward to see that come to life for the students and, and deal with their trauma through writing. You know well, what I mean? I, I want to talk more about um, Voices from the Bayou because I know that there's this is the, hopefully, it's going to be made into a film. And so we're, we'll talk about that. We're going to take a <laughs> short break um, okay. And then when we come back, we'll do a deeper dive into Voices from the Bayou. Okay. I really would like to hear more about it so people will know, you know, they, they can get the book now. Is that correct? They can purchase yes. it yes. on Amazon. Yeah. On Amazon. And so hopefully it's going to be a film and um, we're going to hear more about it. So um, we're going to take a short break. This is Elaine miller Karras with Clarence <clears throat> Neighbor, and we will continue this wonderful conversation about his 
inspired literary career, I'm going to say, but I think his also inspired um, service to the children of actually not only Louisiana, but the world, because a book reaches the world. So we'll be back in just a couple minutes. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine miller Karras' book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at Elaine at ResiliencyWithin.com. Elaine Miller-Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at TraumaResourceInstitute.com. That's TraumaResourceInstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life. Your health. Your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to Resiliency Within. I'm here with Clarence Nehru, who is an author Um, who is a professor, who's been a teacher of young children. He's been many things. And we have been talking about his life and his his literary career. And we're going to talk a little bit more about Voices from the Bayou. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? And and I know this is uh, something that's dear to your heart, Clarence. It is. This is dear to my heart, this project, because it's my students. And my students at Baton Rouge Community College mean a lot to me. And... um, I really, I'm just inspired by them and, and their determination. Some of them returning to school after many years of trying to find their way back to something, to their dreams. You know, this is, that's what community college offers the opportunity for people to come back, right? And to get an education. And to reinvent themselves. Yeah, trying to reinvent themselves. Yeah. And it's a great feeling to be a part of their dream. So in 2017, um, we had and the country was in an uproar because there were a lot of shooting of black men by police officers, and it, and it, there was there were protests breaking out all across the country, 
And then it happened in our country, in our town of Baton Rouge, our little quiet town, LSU football, you know, Southern University band. We're known for our bands, our football and our parades. And here, and there's a quiet town. And here we had this happen with Alton and Sterling being murdered. It was in the summer. And then weeks later, somebody came into the town. They weren't even from Baton Rouge and shot several police officers, black and white, and killed them. And then two weeks later, we had an historic 100-year event, a flood, that left many people homeless. And it wasn't like a hurricane. It was just like a rain just wouldn't stop. And then it just flooded the city. People were stranded, and it was horrible. School started... the. This, while all this was happening, the protest was happening, and then the semester started. And I was like, my students, some of them were displaced because of the floods. Some of them were in the protests. You know what I mean? And I could tell that it was not, it was a very weird semester. And I was like, I could see it on their faces. I was dealing with a lot. And I was like, and I, rem and I always fall back on the fact that writing and dealing with pain and trauma is, is the best way to deal with it is through writing. I remember that for myself when I started writing. And when I taught my fifth graders, I always fall back on that. You have to deal with it and, and talk about it. And so we did. I said, we're going to start the semester off talking about what is happening in real time. We're going to write about it. And some of them were afraid to do that. You know, because I have black students, white students talk about race. Since that's a very sticky topic, right? And people were scared to offend each other. I say, well, we, as long as we do it with love and compassion, not with hate. But we, uh, we do need to be honest. And they did. They wrote these narratives. I had a, like a narrative assignment. And I told them this could count towards a grade. And then I took their narratives and I read them. And I was just deeply moved by what they all had experienced, whether it was racism, uh, some type of trauma around race, um, around being displaced from the flood. They were, all had a story there. And I said, you know what? Y'all have really, y'all have no idea what y'all have written down here by sharing this story, there's so many people who are going to understand race in this country, but in Louisiana, and all of them had this desire to change things. Young people, they wanted to change it, and they wanted people to love more and to heal. And this was all. This was black and white students. This was black, white, um, Pakistan, from Pakistan. Yeah, they were Muslims. They were several. They were from all backgrounds: old, young, black, white. And I decided I was going to ask them, could I publish? We should publish it together. And I told them I know a little bit about publishing a book. Yes, you I, do. You know, who could help me? And I put it together and they couldn't believe it. They, and we had forums on campus around these topics and people were coming to the forums and they were and as a community and it was healing to them. It was also, we went out into the community and did forums with, with different groups, you know, whether it be a group of white women a, a, a sorority of black women. We were having groups around, and people were healing. And they was like, "This is such. This is so needed to talk about this topic with such compassion and love." And your students, these young people, really are concerned, and they 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 have ideas on of what they want to see America become, and and what they're tired of. You know, I had white students. They they have grandparents who are racist, and they were tired of it. They were tired of hearing it in their homes, and they they don't want to be a part of that. They want to be a part of a solution of bringing people together. You had black men who were harassed by the police, but they wanted to show compassion and have conversations about how we could move beyond, you know, stereotypes and move beyond 
not trusting in these are the conversations students were having, right? So Clarence, would did was it possible to bring law enforcement into the conversation? Yes. To hear this voices from the bayou. And I, could you share a little bit about that? Because I often think that that's such an important part of this. Yeah. We, sometimes you don't hear about them being involved, which I know plenty of law enforcement that also want to have that kind of healing. Yeah, we did we definitely had forums where we invited law enforcement to hear and to talk about it, and they were open to it. You know, when I was growing up, we had Mr. We had, we, we called Mr. Friendly and he would come to, he was a white police officer who would come into the neighborhood and he would give us candy and he would talk to us and we called him Officer Friendly. And, um, and I reminded them, you know, and, and this, you know, they don't have that anymore. You know, now they, people come into, and there's always this, you know, suspicion, um, but you have to build community for the people you're serving. You have to serve and build community with them. And how important that is to have that relationship. Yeah. And they and they came to the meetings, our forums and with an open mind. And they heard what the students were saying. Some of the black men who had been harassed by the police for simply hanging out on the corner, doing nothing. They, you know, they get shipped out. It was like, we're not always, we're not, all of us are not the same. We're not all up to no good, you know? So they heard that and they, they were willing to, um, offer how they want to bridge that gap and also become like an officer friendly by coming to the neighborhoods and building that rapport with people in the neighborhood, not just coming um, to create confusion or to stereotype them. And um, so I thought it was very positive to have that engagement and that feedback. And it was certainly healing because I seen people crying as the officer was telling them that we sorry you felt that way. I'm not like that. Officer saying, well, I'm not like that. I believe in coming together and treating everybody with respect. You're a man, you know what I mean? You deserve that. And I could see the tears. People were healing from this, these conversations and the trauma that they had written about in the book. And also, so the, here, here once again, their stories is now healing other people because they're willing and had the courage to share their story. So the students began to see, like, I see what you meant. Because they were against it at first. Like, I don't know if I want to share this. And now they say, we get it now. You're right. You know, it is healing. And it is helping. And they got to so travel, did you, too. Did you only do this for one semester? Or did you just Continue. decide to thread this in to your courses that you taught at the at the college? Oh, that's a good question. I did get the support of the faculty. The faculty decided to have their students buy the book to support the students um, and and we they purchased the book and we taught it in our classrooms. Mm. We worked it as narratives in, in other classrooms. And, it, and so the whole school was doing it. And then the money was made. And we took that money and we gave it back to students. And we took them to New York for, to a book conference. And they were able to speak at this book conference. And they were like, I never imagined being a writer going to speak about a book and this topic. So I was letting them, this is a dream that I had. And it was almost like I was reliving my experience through them being a first time author, going around, promote my book. It was very um, fulfilling and rewarding in a full circle moment that they were experiencing what I had experienced. That's That was the part of, of the dream that I wanted for them. But yeah, it, 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 it was embedded. It was all throughout the classrooms and it still is for some people. Some people still teach it. I do. Um, you know, and we went, we did another volume of voices Um after COVID, that's focused more on mental health after COVID experience. So we have a volume two. And <laughs> this, is, it, this is fantastic. So you have volume one, you have volume two. Now that you adapted then um, Voices 
to the theater. So, yeah. so can you say a little bit about that? Because I'm thinking, well, this needs to be a film because okay. there's so many people around the country right now in the divisiveness is, that is happening that these voices coming together could provide healing for many communities in my <laughs> in my estimation. So it would, talk it a little could. bit about that. So th- let us it, know. Yeah, yeah, I I I did the play, and I I, I produced the, I wrote the play, and I was like, I wanted to stage this play. And I went, and the, and, and the guy from LSU, who, who's the who's um, Vastine Stable, he's named Vastine, and he runs the theater department, right? He oversees it. He contacted me on on um, Facebook, and he said, I read your student stories, and I think it should be, this will be great on stage. Well, I had already written a play. I was like, okay. I went over and I spoke to him, and he was like, we should do this. And I can get my students to, my acting students to, act the parts out as narrative, as monologues that I had written. And um, I got some port, and I also brought in Lamont Rucker, who's who's a seasoned actor, who's been in a lot of Tyler Perry movies. Um, and he had supported my Bayou Soul conference with the youth. He had come as a speaker. So I reached out to his manager and asked him would he join the students in doing this production, and he did, because these topics were important to him. So I staged it, it was a huge success. I mean, the students that were there, your young people, they were just moved by, they, you know, they were healed by it. Um, Danny Glover was there to see the production because he, oh, really? he, he had come as a speaker that he come as a speaker that year. So he happened to be in the audience when the play happened, and he told me how moved he was and how powerful it was, and and this was important work that was happening for these people to tell their stories from these different perspectives, and to be a young and old, black and white. And, and so, yeah. So, so tell me what's happening now, because I'm going. This needs to be on film. All right. I want All to right, see so, this. So, so how produ- can how can how can this happen? Can we write, do a writing campaign to some studio and say, <laughs> "Please do this." <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, I think that you know, I, as I was telling you before we got on the call, I do have a very very accomplished guy that I met early in my writing career, Willie Burton, who is a sound mixer in Hollywood who was interested in going from, he had, he had won Academy Awards for Dreamgirls and Bird, and now he's up for an Academy Award for Oppenheimer. He's very talented and very successful in sound, and he wanted to do directing and producing. He didn't just want to do sound. And he saw that I have these stories, right? Cheeky, the voices, and he's trying to, he's collaborating with me to try to get these made. I mean, we've gotten pretty close at times. We get, you know, it's a, it's a struggle to get a movie made. But you're right, there are different avenues now of streaming networks, and we might become successful at it. Um, but we did do a short film, though. We did produce a short film that I that I wrote, and it was something more for educational purposes that we use locally. It wasn't something that we did for a national release, but we did do we did do something locally for it, and it was, it was a good project. Um, so we hope to bring that and make it a, like I said, a movie one day. And I continue, I want to do more stage plays around it. And I'm trying to figure that out now. Like, how can I bring it to stage around the country? Well, it sounds to me like it's so important. And I think something has to happen. And maybe now that he's up for the latest Academy Award, maybe he'll have the funds to be able to help. Because I know it's a, it's a, it is a, an expensive proposition. But I just have to, you know, this is always my kind of creativity. I wonder if Danny, Danny Glover has any, um, <laughs> contact him. Maybe he can help too. Because it sounds like when people hear this, they want more of it. Yeah, I think that 
You know, I, you know these. They come and they speak and whatever. And you're right. There might be opportunities to ask people for help and assistance. And and I'm sure Willie has reached out to some people. And there were some people who, if you get the funding, hey, we'll jump on board and we'll help you. Um, I think that when you have a passion for something and it's your passion, you know, you have to do it all you can and get out there and try to raise the money. And we did. We did a GoFund thing to try to raise. And we raised a little money and we was able to do some things. We, we were able to shoot a trailer. Every step that we're doing is getting us to the finish line. So we continue to do it and continue to do the work. And I know all about that. Because it, my first writing, my first book, it, it didn't happen overnight. It took years before that book, from the time I started writing it, and it, it took years for it to get published. It took a lot of rewrites. It, it's not an overnight success thing. I mean, I had a lot to learn about writing, and I had to be committed to it. And and, 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 that, and that's the other part of it. You know, you have to be committed to the work that you're doing, whatever it is, um, and not give up on it if you believe in it. And so I have another question for you. I mean, with all that you've experienced in your life, you've had your share of tragedies. You've had amazing, you've had success. You've had, you know, illuminaries um, of our world come to you and say, oh, this is, this is really important work. What is it about you, Clarence? You know, I'm thinking that, you know, not everyone that grows up with adversity stays with adversity. I mean, we all have suffering in our lives, but what was it about you that that was that spark for you. Even, you know, I mean, of course you talked about the deaths of your brothers inspiring you to do something in their name. But, you know, can have has someone said to you, well, oh Clarence, I mean maybe your grandma would say, Clarence, you were always that way. Was it what was it about you? Maybe to share with other people sitting there going, Well, maybe I can do what Clarence can do, but what was it? What was it? I don't know if it was one thing. I keep saying I, I think it was a combination of having, you know, a grandmother praying for me and taking me under her wings and taking who didn't live in the projects, taking me to her home and showing me a better life in a better way. Um, it was my other grandmother taking me to church with her um, on Sunday mornings um, and introducing me to God. Um, for the first time, and maybe it was a combination of teachers um, at the school believing in me and taking the time out for me and showing me that I, you know, it, it, you know, it was so. It's a combination of things. I can't say it was one thing, but one thing it was is my I I had a determination and made a decision in my mind that I was going to do better. That I wanted to be. I wanted more. It was, a, it was conscious. I was very conscious of it. I mean, I saw that I could have gone one way in life. I guess I could have turned um, and gone the wrong path. You know what I mean? But it was. I was very conscious of it, that I wanted more. But I had seen more too. You have to get, you have to experience more. You have to see more beyond the brick walls of the circles where you live at. If you're confined in that one space, that's all you see and all you know is very hard. So I had the opportunity through my teachers to travel to Canada. They take me on trips to D.C. I saw D.C. and I was like, I want to go to college. I was in 10th grade. I want to come back here. They were exposing exposure. I was being exposed to things. And you could find in your community um, through different organizations, through teachers, 
um, opportunities to be exposed and to have that exposure. But you have to make your mind up and say, you know what? Because they're, they're, those angels are there. There are people in your life that are around you. They're teachers. They're in the church. They're, they're, they're trying to see and help you. you know, my angel always say, you'll be amazed that when you're trying to fulfill a dream, uh, trying to make something in life, how, how many people will reach down and grab you up? I've mm. seen that. And so I, have, I, I love that there's angels out there. So yeah. for someone who may be struggling, going, well, how can I ever make this be? I, I don't, I really have grown up in such hardship. And yet I have such vision about how things could be for others and for myself is look for the angels. Yeah. Look for the angels in your life and the signs, you know, you know, their signs and, you know, you have to recognize when those signs and those angels come, God is speaking to them, to you, through them, to you. And you have to be open and and ready to walk into that. So space. can you share with us what some of your signs were? Yeah, I, I, you know, I got a sign. I, I love sharing this one because I didn't, I told you, I didn't plan to be a writer. Yes. And I was at a crossroads in my life. And I was, and I was a chemist and I was, and there was a spark. You know, there I, I, I love Chinese food and every, everybody knows that about me and white rice. So every, <laughs> I would, so often would stop, I would get off the train in DC and there was a Chinese spot right by my apartment. And I stopped there one day and I had Chinese food and I loved it. Read the fortune cookie. Well, the fortune cookie, I still have it. It says, you're a lover of words. Someday you'll write a book. And I was like, what? I'm going to, I'm going to do what? That was definitely a sign. That, that was, was really a fortune sign. cookie. Oh my gosh. It was a fortune, but it was a sign that I was on the right path. Yes. Because I had already started writing and formulating an idea. And then I was like, God, what am I doing? You know what I mean? Is this, where's this? So I had that with me because there was a lot of rejection in, in my published. Yeah, it was a lot of rejection, like, but it was good rejection. Like you have something, there's a story here, but you need to work on your grammar, your writing. Your, your style is horrible, you know, but you, you, you have talent here. So I, I mean, but I never took the rejection to hurt my feelings. I was like, for you just me, worked harder. Awful. Did you work harder just, when you got I this? I worked harder at it. I yeah. was like, you know what? This wasn't something I planned anyway. So I'm going to take every rejection as an opportunity. So well, and I, I, I love, I love the fortune cookie though, because sometimes yeah. you'll get a fortune cookie and go, ah, fortune cookie, throw it in the garbage. But I mean, no. that was really something that you took as a sign to keep going. I took it as a sign. I definitely took it as a sign. And sometimes um, I'll write a poem and I would pray and, and, and I swear I'd be in church and the, the pastor would say the lines. I grabbed on into anything. I was like, at that point, God is speaking to me. Somebody speak, is speaking to me from the other side. So anything, anything I can grab onto, I took it as a sign. And it was they were right, though. Those signs really helped guide me to the finish line because there was rejection. And people telling me I couldn't do this. Are you out of your mind to develop chemistry, a, a secure, solid career path to become a writer, an artist? You're going to be broke. Like, what are you doing? You know, so, but I had that fortune cooking. I had those signs that were speaking to me from somewhere and I held on to it and it made me believe when I, when I didn't want to give up. I always looked at that cookie. And I said, I know this came from God. This came from somewhere. This it came, came from, from somewhere. It's God, the universal unconsciousness. Yeah. Your belief structure is. 
Clarence, our time is quickly going away, but I know that there was a question that that was important to you. And, you know, and it has circling back to Dr. Maya Angelou, who served as such a mentor to you. So what did you learn from her about being resilient? Oh, wow. I mean, I just... In, in two minutes or less. <laughs> yeah, I just, gap. you know, yes. I would say, you know, not to, no matter what, your circumstances look like, uh, no matter what you're going through, there's always profound hope. Yeah. And and you can, if you just keep putting one foot in front of the other, if you can walk, but it's in your mind. In your mind, you decide that I'm not going to give up, that I'm going to get up. And every day you walk out into the, and you walk out the door and you continue, because it's hard. Life is hard. Sometimes it's joy. It could be joy and it could be loving, but it could be hard. And at times you want to give up. And some people give up. They commit suicide. Some people just give in. Right. But for those of us who decide that you you get up every day, it can get better. You know, I mean, if you work at it and you use your community and together and your family and the support. So and family don't always have to be blood. She said it could be those people who love you and treat you right and guide you, find those people and surround yourself around those people. Yes. And most importantly, when you do all of that, be a rainbow in somebody else's cloud. That was her favorite thing. And I would was it that be a rainbow? Rainbow in somebody else's cloud. Uh, you know what I mean? Be there for lovely. somebody else. You don't have to be Oprah Winfrey to have to, to impact <laughs> the entire world. You don't have to be Maya Angelou. You could do it in one step at a time with the people near you or close to you, help somebody else. And that's even more liberating and rewarding than anything else. And that certainly is is your legacy, Clarence, from what you've shared with us with all the students that you've touched. And I know that you will continue to touch and also my audience that have are having the great gift of listening to you and your thoughts today. Now, I also want to just remind you that there is also a sign you shared with me that you wanted to spend some more time with your writing and me asking you to be on the show might be that sign. So I'm just going <laughs> to remind you of that because yeah. that's, you know, what else is true? I often end the show by saying to my audience, what else is true about your life? I think Clarence's journey is certainly a legacy to all the things that he has created that has been true and good in his life. And I, I love that, what Maya Angelou said about looking for the rainbow when there's lots of clouds. So Clarence, thank you so much for being here. And I hope that you will come back when we have more information about when the film is going to be um, released. Because I'm just going to say it's going to be released, Voices from thank the Body. Thank you. I'll take and that. And then you can I'll come and that. talk about the film and tell us all about who's starring in it and all that kind of good stuff. And hopefully everybody on earth is going to see it. Thank you for that. And thank you for having me and for, and for, you know, I'm glad that you came into my life, you know, and that you, you know, the work that you're doing is important. And I, I just, I'm very honored. And like I said, and I never thought I'd be on your show. Like I said, this wasn't planned. And I, you know, so I'm happy that you invited me well, and I'll definitely you. come back. Well, Clarence, I will. I will definitely invite you to come back. So we'll talk. We'll talk about that when we get off air. So for uh, resiliency within, this is Elaine Miller Karras signing off. Until next week. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. 
Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine Miller-Karras, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. Resiliency Within with host Elaine Miller-Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com.